You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church family. Hope you guys are doing well. This is my, uh, actually my first Sunday to be here since we've been back, and so it is so good for me to be in this place again. I, I feel great, and to see all of your faces, and this is awesome, and your masked faces at that, and so it's just incredible. Kind of a strange time that we live in, but I'm just so thankful that we get to be here uh, together. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is John Hall. I'm one of the lay elders here at Citizens Church. And it's, uh, it's such a privilege to be here and get to uh, serve in this capacity uh, this morning. And I know that our gathering is less than ideal, but we love being here with you. And uh, as an elder body, we love you guys as a church. This morning, we're going to be in Genesis 22. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. We'll take a look at that passage together here in just a minute. But there are a few things that I want us to walk away from this sermon with. One of those is that part of this sermon is going to be heavy. And it's weighty, and it's a difficult subject in some ways. And I want you to feel the weight of what Abraham is asked to do in this passage. What God requires of him is not just difficult, but in reality it is horrific in so many ways. And in the end, you're going to only understand what God has provided with us, in a sense, if we can make this journey with Abraham. Uh, another thing that I, I want you to recognize and realize this morning is that God has been really really good to Citizens Church. Been good to us in so many ways. He's been far better to us uh, than we deserve. But one of the ways in which God has blessed us is with an abundance of children. Uh, this church is good at making babies, and that is an awesome thing, man. That is, that is an incredible thing. And so that is a gift from God. We cherish your family. We cherish your children. Uh, it's an awesome thing to be able to be a part of a church like that. But the reality is that there are some of you who want children and to date have been unable to do so. And this is a big, big part of the Abraham story. And I want you to hear me say this, that we see you, and we see you as valued, and we are praying for you, and we pray that God would grant you the desire of your heart to be able to have children. And so today, as we wade through what the Bible has to say about this, I want to remind you that God really is in control, that he really is good, and that he has this. And while we may not understand the why because behind why you're not having children, we can trust that God is good in all of that. And then there's another thing that I want us to do. It's the obvious teaching and meaning of Genesis 22. It is basically Jehovah Jireh, that God is the one who provides. And so we serve that God. Providence is the idea that God has both the foresight to see our needs even before we realize that they're needs. And he also has the ability to meet those needs. And praise God that that's true. Providence means that God controls all things, that he actively steps into history. He even steps into individual lives to give those people the very best. And there's nothing better that he could give us than himself. And so he points us towards himself over and over. And so my hope is that wherever you find yourself in life, whatever is going on, that you would realize that your deepest need today is Jesus Christ and that you would be pointed to that. And I hope in many ways this sermon points you to that reality. But another way to think of providence is simply this. It becomes the active display of God's goodness to us. 
But there's this flip side of providence that I think oftentimes we don't think about. And it's how do I respond to God's goodness? Do I really trust that God is willing to provide me better, something better than what I'm going after, than what I'm going to pursue? Do we trust that God has something better in store for my life? And that something better leads us to more of him. And as he leads us to more of him, it means that I may have to give up and let go of the things that I'm pursuing. Many times the battle is over what my heart desires, the pursuits of the things of this world versus the way that God would lead me. And I want you to understand that those two things are at odds. They're not the same thing. And God's answer to the desires of our heart is always to point us to more of his son, Jesus Christ, because that is our deepest need. So this morning we're going to take a look at Genesis 22 and see what God has to say to us out of this text. But before we get to Genesis 22... I want us to take a step back. One of the things that you need to understand is you've got to understand the context of the Abraham story, specifically how it pertains to the birth of his son Isaac and what he went through and what he struggled through to get to that point. So in Genesis 12, so this is 10 chapters before our text. Don't don't turn there. Okay, in Genesis 12, 10 chapters before our text today, God appears to a man named Abram who later becomes Abraham for the first time, and he makes some spectacular promises to him. Several weeks ago, one of our elder candidates, Kevin Evans, he preached on this passage. He did a spectacular job. If you haven't seen that sermon, go back to our website, pull that up. You need to see that. But in those, I just want to highlight some things that God shared with Abram. He said, one, you need to leave your country and your kindred. In other words, leave everything behind that you've had all of your life, the things that you're comfortable with. I want you to go to a land that he had never seen, and he promised that he would give him this land. And he said, you will be made into a great nation. Now, you have to understand something about Abram. He's 75 years old. He has no children. And God is promising him at this point in his life that he's going to make him into a great nation. You will be blessed, your name will be made great in a way that you turn out to be a blessing. Those who bless you will be blessed, those who dishonor you, they will be cursed. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in that one statement are huge gospel implications. And then I think one of the greatest miracles in scripture occurs in verse 4 of chapter 12. It says that Abram went and he left what he was comfortable with and he went to a land that he'd been promised, which was in Canaan, and he went there. And so by the time we get to Genesis 15, 11 years have transpired. 11 years have gone by. And guess what? He still lives in a land that's occupied by other people. He still has no child. And so at this point, he and his wife Sarah decide to take matters into their own hands. And in Genesis 15, we see that Abram, because God has not come through with an heir, he's decided to make one member of his household his heir, a guy by the name of Eliezer of Damascus. And so he makes this guy his heir, and God shows up in chapter 15. He says, this guy will not be your heir. Your heir will come from you. And God treats Abram like a father. He says, Abram, step outside the tent. And it's as if he puts his arm around him. He says, look up at the night sky. He says, count the stars if you can. And Abram's like, what? Yeah, count the stars. Can you do it? And so he starts off, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Did I get? Yeah, I'll start over. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And he gets to a point where he says, I, I, I can't. I can't count the stars. And God says, so will your descendants be. There will be a day that you will have so many descendants, they won't be able to be counted. And that is in this moment, 
the Bible says that Abram believes everything that God is telling him. And it says, the Bible says it was counted to him, it was reckoned to him as righteousness at that point. But Sarah, she has other plans. In her mind, 11 years is long enough to wait. And since she has not been able to conceive and deliver a child to Abram, she gives her servant Hagar to Abram, and together they have a child named Ishmael. And instead of bringing unity and solidarity and making an heir, it brings division and confusion. And it brings this division that would have generation and even national consequences. And this is what happens when we fail to trust and obey God. By the time we get to Genesis 17, two chapters after 15, another 13 years has transpired. So counting this up from the first time that God appears to Abram in Genesis 12 to chapter 17, 24 years have gone by. And he's still living in a land occupied by other people. And he's still has not been able to conceive a child with his wife. 24 long years with no answers and literally nothing to show for a belief that God would deliver on his promises. And it's at this moment that God appears to Abram again. And in this appearance, he changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. And the meaning of the name Abraham is that you would be the father of a multitude or the father of a nation. Can you imagine as a 99-year-old man that you get named the father of a multitude, and you get to wear that around people. And it's as if everyone around you would say, really, you're the father of a multitude? You're the father of a nation? Look, man, you're 99 years old. Your wife is 89 years old. Listen, I hate to break it to you, but you're not having kids at this point, okay? Whatever you bought into from this God, it must not be true. But look what God tells him. Yet here's God's promise to Abraham. I have made you the father of a multitude. He says it in past tense. In God's economy, it has already transpired. God said, I spoke this into being. It will happen. It will take place. God will make nations from Abraham. Kings will come forth from Abraham's line. And this covenant is not just between God and Abraham. This is generational. It is an everlasting covenant that will go on and on and on for eternity. And we benefit from that today through Jesus Christ. Circumcision becomes the physical sign of the covenant people of God. And shortly after the events of chapter 17, Abraham and Sarah visited by three men who revealed that a year from that point, they would have a child. Sarah overhears this in the tent. She has a good laugh at this because not only is she 89 years old, but the Bible says that basically her reproductive cycle has stopped and it stopped a long time ago. So it's not just an age thing. It's become a physically impossible kind of thing. It's a way too late kind of thing, if you will. And yet in that year, miraculously, they conceive a child. And a year later, their son Isaac is born to them. Abraham at the age of 100, Sarah at the age of 90. And they name him Isaac, and the meaning of his name is laughter. And the theological meaning of his name is crystal clear because it is God who always gets the last laugh. And God has this incredible sense of humor. My wife, Laurie, and I, we have five boys. Our oldest is 23. Our youngest is seven. So that makes me kind of an older guy, okay? So what I'm saying to you, I remember the birth of all five of my children. They are etched into my memory. There are things that I will never forget, but there's nothing like the first one. I was a young guy. I was in seminary at the time. It was the middle of December. It was the end of the week, Friday. It was finals week. I had just gotten through with my last final that morning. I thank God that he allowed me to get through finals before my son came. It was an amazing gift from God. And I was exhausted. I'm not saying this so you pity me or anything like that, but that entire week I'd gotten about 12 hours of sleep. 
And so to say that I was tired was a little bit of an understatement. I looked at Laurie. We were supposed to go to a Christmas party that night. I said, I can't do it. Let's stay home, have dinner, watch a movie. We decided to do that. So as we're sitting on the couch getting ready to watch this movie, my wife is walking toward the couch. She stops about halfway. She bends over. She groans. She holds her stomach. And at that moment, I snapped back into an adrenaline rush. And I was like, what? What just happened? And she said, my water just broke. And I looked at her and I asked one of the dumbest questions I've ever asked in my life. I said, are you sure? She said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And so we switched into high gear. Literally, I went into panic mode, okay? I thought I would be ready for this moment. I wasn't ready for this moment. And so I'm panicking. I'm trying to get her to the car. I'm rolling down the window. Can you carry those bags any faster? I'm kidding. I carried the bags, okay? But we got her in the car, and, man, we lived in Arlington at the time. For whatever reasons, our insurance required that we had to be at a hospital in Fort Worth. It's about 30 minutes away. And so I am flying down I-20. I am not making friends by my driving that night. And so I am just weaving in and out of traffic, trying to get us there as fast as I can. My wife is laying up against the door. Between when she's in a contraction, she's in pain, she's moaning, she's screaming. And then she would set up between contractions. It was just like she had this clarity of mind. And she would look out the window and she would say, you're in the wrong lane. You're too close to that car. You need to be two lanes over. You're going to miss the exit. And I'm like, look, woman, okay, you worry about having that baby. Let me worry about driving this car. And we managed to get to the hospital, and we were still married and on semi-good terms. And so we get her into the room, get her settled, and several hours later, she delivers our firstborn, Peyton. 2.30 in the morning, Saturday, December 14th, it was just an incredible experience. She was in a lot of pain, so they gave her medication, knocked her out. She goes unconscious. She's, she's not around. My parents are there. Uh, my in-laws are there. They're both slapping me on the back saying, way to go. Congratulations, dad. And I'm sitting there thinking about it like, yeah, you know, all she did was carry the child for nine months and deliver it. But yeah, I did drive her here. And so I, I deserve to be congratulated for that, I guess. And so in that moment, they begin to check out. They're like, hey, dude, it's three in the morning. We're going to go home, get some sleep. We'll be back up here later in the day. So I'm left with my unconscious wife, my newborn child, a nurse, and me. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know what to do with an infant. I wasn't expecting my wife to be unconscious. I was expecting some help in this, and I don't even know how to hold this child. And I'm, I'm sitting here looking at it, and all of a sudden, the, the nurse tells me, he says, look, if you need me, I'll be out at the desk. And I'm like, you're leaving? You're going to leave this child with me? And, and, and it's like the weight of the world came on my shoulders at that moment, and I realized I am responsible for this guy. I'm responsible in every way, and it just hit me, the gravity of that moment. And just about 30 minutes later, another lady walks in, never seen her before. She's got on scrubs. She's got on a badge. She obviously works at the hospital. She says, Mr. Hall, I work in the nursery. I'm here to take your son. I'm going to get some measurements. We're going to take a look at some things. I'll clean him up, and then I'll bring him back to you. And it's like a switch came on. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, lady, I don't know you. You're telling me you're about to take my newborn son to a place in the hospital where I don't know where it is and out of my sight, and I'm just going to hand him over to you? I don't think so. And I told her, I said, listen, this isn't personal, but you're not taking my son anywhere. And she said, what? I said, yeah. I said, if you want to take him to the nursery, I'll go with him, but you're not taking him from me. And she said, are you serious? I said, I'm dead serious. And so after they made a few calls, I ended up going to the nursery where 
It's only supposed to be hospital personnel. And so they stuck us over in the corner. And I'm sitting there holding Peyton. I'm like, oh, man, I made things tough on you. I'm sorry. This is the first time, but it won't be the last. And so here we are sitting over in the corner. And I'm trying to keep a low profile over there. And when all of that is done, said and done, they get us back to the room. And listen, my natural instinct, 30 minutes old, I, I, I was willing to lay down my life for that kid. I would have gladly given my life to protect him. And only 30 minutes old, 30 minutes into fatherhood, and I was already there. So as we read this text in Genesis 22, I want you to understand several things. One, with all of this in mind, Abraham's journey to having a child and watching God's faithfulness over 25 years play out, and also knowing that every good parent's natural instinct is to protect their child. And then here comes this, chapter 22, verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. What? Offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose, went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, he saw the place from afar, and then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and he took his hand, took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went, they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. He said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. See, so we find out at the beginning of this text in chapter 22 that this is a test for Abraham. But Abraham doesn't have that information. Abraham doesn't know that. God wanted to prove something about Abraham's heart, about his loyalties to God. And the test is essentially this. What do you value more? Do you value the creation more or do you value the creator more? See, here's the beginning step to understanding the gospel. This is every person's problem. 
we tend to value, to serve, and to devote our efforts to creation. When we do this, we're committing the base sins of pride and idolatry. It's pride because, in a sense, through our actions, through our words, through our attitudes, what we are saying is, I know better than God. Now, we would never actually articulate it that way. We would never actually say that. But what we're actually doing with our lives, we are actually doing that. And to take it a step further, not only do we say we know better than God, we're actually saying, in God's place, I will serve as my own God. And I want to tell you something. We make lousy gods. We should leave the God business to the one true God. It's also idolatry. It's not just pride. It's also idolatry because we're taking something that has been made and we are substituting it in the place of God. We are transferring those things, if you will. And we put something there that should never be a God in the first place. In the short term, we're blinded by the pleasure fix that creation brings. But in the long term, we discover that those things make horrible gods because they're never actually able to fix what's wrong with us. And they're never actually able to fill the void in our lives of our broken, twisted hearts. So Abraham's test is essentially this. Has Isaac, the creation, become more to Abraham than the God, the creator? Said another way, has the fulfillment of God's promise become more the priority than the one who made the promise? And this is the tendency of mankind to take beautiful things that the creator has given to us and to take those things and to twist those things into something horrible and destructive and even evil. So how does Abraham handle the test? How does he do? We find out that God calls to Abraham and commands three things. He says, one, take your son, your only son, the son you love, in case there was any misunderstanding about that. It's obviously Isaac. Number two, he says, I want you to go to the land of Moriah, which is not where he's at. So I want you to file that away, that place, the land of Moriah. Remember that? We'll come back to that in just a minute. And the third thing that he tells him, this is where the text gets difficult, it gets hard, it gets weighty. He wants Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering on a mountain that he will show to him. And this is difficult for a number of reasons because Abraham is not being asked to dip into his funds or to give more of his wealth or even to give all of his wealth away. Abraham is being asked to do something horrific, if you will, something nightmarish. He's being asked to give the one thing that can never be replaced, the one thing that he waited 25 years of his life to be fulfilled. And in a moment, God wants to take that from him. Not only is it going to mean the loss of his son, but it will be the loss of his son at his own hands. It will be his doing that makes that happen. And the nature in which he is to offer his son is no less brutal. You can read the details of what a burnt offering is according to the Mosaic Law in Leviticus chapter 1 later on if you want to, but I'll give you the basics and in blanded terms as I can. You bleed the animal, you sprinkle the blood on the altar, and then you prepare the carcass in a way that would involve flaying it, and then you burn what's left. And this is what... Abraham is being asked to do with Isaac. It's graphic, it's gross, but I hope we are taken back by the brutality of it. I'm not sharing this with you for the shock and awe of it, but I want you to remember this because it plays into the meaning of this passage. This also reminds me of something that we have lost in our culture and in our day, which is the gravity and the seriousness of sin. One thing that I want you to understand is you don't get to tell God how serious sin is. So one of the things I want you to understand is some of you may think, man, I, I, I've got a great walk with God and I'm just killing it. And yeah, I've got sin in my life, but they're pretty minor things. I want you to understand something. You don't get to tell God what's minor when it comes to sin. 
And then there's the other side of that, and there's the flip side of that. And there's some of you in this room who think that you have sinned so grievously, that you've carried on for so long, that somehow you're this special, unique case where your sin is beyond the reach of the cross. And I want to assure you that is not the case. There is no one that has sinned beyond what Christ can cover. That is simply not true. And if that's not good news, then I don't know what good news is. But back to the burnt offering thing. Burnt offerings were a common practice. They were not unique to the nation of Israel. So when God asked Abraham to do this in Genesis 22, Abraham knows exactly what God is asking him to do. And I want you to feel the weight of this moment for Abraham as a father, as a parent, who this would never enter his mind to do anything. And God offers no explanation as to his motivation for asking this of Abraham. There is no reason given for this command. Abraham is simply told this is what he needs to do. And so if Abraham takes out Isaac, then there are serious implications to this. It means that God has decided against making Abraham into a nation. It means that God has not been faithful to his promise. It means God is a liar. It means that God is not holy. He is not good. This means that Abraham has not followed a good God, but rather he has followed for most of his life a fraud. And it means his plan to save and to redeem the world will not happen through Israel and possibly not at all. And there's no explanation given for it. Simply told to go and do it. So how does Abraham react to this? He obeys. He goes and he does it. After God's instructions, notice what Abraham does. He rose early in the morning, the Bible tells us, so that means he got to stew on it all night. I've often wondered if he slept even a wink. He sets out with all the preparations involving a trip to make a burnt offering, saddles the donkey, takes two young men to help him carry the stuff. He took Isaac. I would have been tempted to leave Isaac. Oh, God, sorry, I forgot him. Can't believe that slipped my mind. He cuts the wood needed for the fire, and then he sets out for Moriah. I call this being obedient in the blind. It means I remain faithful to God in spite of the fact that I have no idea what is happening or why it is happening. It means my trust in God is unshakable because of who he is, not because I can muster that kind of faith. It means that I will trust him and obey him, not because I understand God or what he's up to, but simply because time and time again, he has shown me that he is faithful, that I can trust him. I trust and obey him because I have the testimony of scripture that points me to accounts like this one of Abraham and Isaac that says, God is faithful. You can trust him. Just walk with him. It means in a world racked with all kinds of uncertainty, a world that is reeling from a worldwide pandemic, social and racial unrest, economic uncertainty, serious divisions in the nation, and the myriad of disappointments and loss that has come with all of these things. It it means even in these uncertain times that my Lord, my King, my Savior, and my God deserves my loyalty, my trust, and my obedience. And he deserves all of those things, even in the uncertainties of a difficult life. And so what it comes down to, what it boils down to, is we are a people who walk by faith, not by sight, not by what I can see. In the light of Abraham's actions, the only conclusion that can be drawn is that Abraham was faithful in what God had tested him. In the 25 years of walking with God and waiting on God to fulfill the promise of giving him a son, he had learned to value and to love God's direction in his life. In Abraham's mind, this is the only way that Abraham can work out this dilemma. If God gives 
if God has given Isaac to Abraham, then God has the right to take Isaac away as well. And even if Abraham doesn't understand what God is doing, he is compelled to follow and obey his direction. And Abraham has ordered things in his life correctly. I want you to see this. I want you to understand his faithfulness in, in, in this moment. He has taken Isaac and he understands this is important and this is a priority in my life and this is critical, but this is only creation. This is not the creator. And I will follow the creator and make the creator my priority. And this way of thinking has to be the only thing holding Abraham's sanity together at this point as he and Isaac walk up that mountain alone, as he knows what he's been asked to do, as he knows what they're walking towards in that moment. But Isaac is old enough that he has questions. And Isaac asks his dad questions. He says, hey, dad, I, I noticed you got the knife. I noticed you've got the wood. But uh, where's the lamb? We're going to need a lamb. And in this moment, God gives Abraham such a composure, such a presence of mind to answer in this way. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. See, God is in the business of providing what he's needed. God provides those things in his way, in his time, and for his glory. And there's a level of trust on Abraham's part that even in this moment, that this is Abraham's only hope that God will somehow provide. And so they come to the place that God showed Abraham. We find out how serious Abraham is about obeying God. He builds an altar. He lays the wood on the altar. And in one of the most horrific events of his life, I can imagine, he takes his son, who's probably not expecting this, he binds his son, lays his son on top of the wood, I can't imagine how horrible that would be for Abraham. I can imagine how terrifying that would be for Isaac. And then Abraham takes the knife with every intention of slaying his son. And it's at this point that God intervenes. And it says, an angel of the Lord spoke to him. And he says, Abraham, Abraham, he calls out to him. And he says, here I am. And then he says, don't lay a hand on that boy. Don't touch him because the resolution of the test has come. And now God understands. Abraham has proved that he fears God because he would not withhold his son, his only son, from God. Here's my point. Here's the thing that I want you to understand. Walking in step with the king of kings is not easy. And it is brutally hard to understand why life is so difficult. And there are going to be certain points where all you can do is continue forward based solely on the history of your relationship with God. There's nothing in front of you that sees, that you see that would make you want to go forward, but you keep going forward based on the history of your relationship with God. We press forward not because we can see where this path is taking us, but because we know who is leading us. That is why we go. King David in Psalm 23 said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why would David not fear evil in the valley of the shadow of death? That sounds like a great place to fear evil. Because you're with me. You are there with me. And I hope that wherever you find yourself today, whatever the situation may be, regardless of how difficult or bad or even evil it is in your life, I hope that you're comforted by God who is not only willing to walk with you through that, but is willing to lead you through that. We serve a king who is in the business of waking, making a way where there is seemingly no way out. And so we find out that what God provides is the absolute best for us. It's at this point in Scripture 
that the Bible says that Abraham looks up, that he noticed the ram was caught in a thicket by its horns, and he goes over and he takes the ram and he substitutes the ram in Isaac's place, and he offers the ram instead of Isaac. Friends, this is called the grace of God. This is called a beautiful, beautiful thing. See, there are deeper gospel implications to the substitution of the ram for Isaac's life. John the Baptist in John chapter 1, when he sees Jesus walking by, he calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is the Lamb who would die in our place, who would be sacrificed in our place. When there was no way for us, God made a way. And this, in Genesis 22, is a picture of that. In a moment when Abraham thought he was going to lose his son, probably the confidence of his wife, if not his marriage, his idea of his role in God's plan, his hope of who God was, and his hope of future generations, and even nations coming from him, God provided the way out. And because of this event, Abraham renames the place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord sees all or the Lord will provide. In other words, this mountain in the land of Moriah is the place where the Lord provides. Remember, a few moments ago, I asked you to file that place away to remember that. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it tells us that as King Solomon was getting ready to build the temple, he began construction on Mount Moriah. The temple is found in the city of Jerusalem. So in Abraham's day, in chapter 22 of Genesis, this was probably the future site of the city of Jerusalem that didn't exist at the time. And so what that means is this mount is where the Lord will provide. And it's in that place, 2,000 years beyond Abraham, that Jesus Christ, probably close by, if not that place, died on a cross and became the ultimate sacrifice for us. See, God was showing Abraham that he would not require of Abraham the price of his one and only son, Isaac. Instead, God would pay that price. God would do that for us. And he gave over his one and his only son to die a brutal, horrific, and even nightmarish death on a cross so that there would be victory over sin and death so that you wouldn't have to pay the price for your sin because God provided a way so that you could be the citizen of the kingdom to end all kingdoms so that you wouldn't have to live with the shame and the guilt of a lifetime spent in rebellion against God. And in the end... God not only provides the way where there is seemingly no way out, he becomes the way. And it's our trust and our faith in him as our Savior and our Lord that makes that possible. My hope and my prayer is that all of us would lean into the one who is faithful, the one who has never failed to keep a promise, the one who loves beyond what we deserve, the one who has provided an eternal path to life and hope beauty to him be the honor and the glory forever and ever amen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son his one and only boy so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life my hope and my prayer for you is that wherever you find yourself today you would trust in the provision that God has made through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for Citizens Church. I thank you for 
the ministry of this place. I thank you for everything about this church, Lord. And I, I just ask that if there are those here today, man, that are just they're struggling with life and there are things going on in their lives and they don't understand and they can't see a way out, that you would show yourself in an incredible and mighty way. I pray that your hand would be upon their lives. I pray that in this moment they would see you as more beautiful, more lovely. And that you would guide them. I pray that your hand would be upon this place. I thank you for how incredible you are. I thank you for being a God who provides. And I pray all this in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ.